Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Tony, happy Lord's Day and Palm Sunday to you. Happy Lord's Day and Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Yeah, Palm Man, Sunday. That came up fast. It, it, Palm Sunday is the best. And this is the thing I feel like we have to talk about right away, and that is let's debrief the palm situation. So tell me how much you love palms in church. So we didn't actually have palms in church Neither today. I know. It's kind of crazy. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about palms in church, uh, except once in a while, like you get whipped in the back of the head by some kid. Um, and those, man, those things hurt. They are so good at inflicting pain. It's like a rat tail from a wet towel times 1000. I know. Seriously. Did you, did you guys do palms in church when you guys were kids? I think so. I mean, I at least have a recollection of the palm experience and you know how like you can do palm origami to make it look like a cross or like a crash or a BMW, anything that you want to make out of it. Somebody's built a way to do that. But it is amazing how effective palms are as weapons. Yeah, I have to imagine that as kids that either Adam or Zach just just whipped you right across the fanny at some point. Yeah, I think that's well said. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so I have a funny (laughs) Palm Sunday story, and it's actually an Ash Wednesday story. Oh, even better. So you know how like... So traditionally in liturgical traditions, you take the palms from Palm Sunday and you save them and then you use them to make the ashes for Ash Wednesday. That's legit right there. So apparently if you don't preserve the palms correctly, they uh, they decompose in a certain way that they become incredibly acidic. Hmm. You seeing where this is going Uh, a little bit. You have a crazy amount of specific palm knowledge. Yeah, and the reason that I know this is because one year the church that I was at, uh, I was in a Lutheran church, and the church did not properly preserve the palms, and so they became very acidic. So when they burned them to make the ash, the ash was extremely acidic, and so everybody got like second degree chemical burns on their forehead from these like this like terrible acidic palm ash For that we rubbed all over people's faces. That's crazy. Yeah, it's bad. There's like specific ways you have to prepare the palms because I guess there's some oil or something in the leaves that if you don't prepare them right, it can actually become really like like caustic on your skin. I had no idea that happened. So do you do you have to buy like a palm humidor? How does one properly preserve palms? I have no idea. I mean, I think you probably just freeze them or something, but um, whatever they did, the the leaves decomposed enough that the oil became acidic and it just left. It was funny because everybody had like, not only did you have the ash on Ash Wednesday, but then you had like burns on your face for like the rest of the week. All lent long. Yeah. It was like, it was like self-imposed. It was like the self-imposed mark from uh, Left Behind. There was like that magic eye mark that people Christians had miraculously on their forehead. The Lent that keeps on giving. Yeah, exactly. That is incredible. I've never heard that, but also that's a serious commitment to keep the palms for that period of time, for like a whole year and then turn them into ash. I mean, that's commitment. It is. Yeah. And I, I have no idea where that tradition comes from. Um, it's obviously not the Bible because uh, Ash Wednesday is not in the Bible. Lent's not in the Bible. So I, I don't know like where that particular thing comes from. Palms are in the I, Bible, though. So pa- Palms are in the Bible, yes. Yeah. I mean, So we can talk about Palm Sunday because Palm Sunday is in the Bible. We can talk about – but like Ash Wednesday is not there. Do you think that at that moment anybody who is present at the arrival of Jesus was thinking this, this is going to be a great quasi-holiday on the church calendar? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is going to be awesome, guys. We're going to take these palms and we're going to put them down. We're going to say Hosanna and people are going to be doing this for years. <laughs> I mean, when you think of it that way, we, in some ways, 
the significance of having palms like in a very sterile setting so to speak where you're you're in a some kind of sanctuary some kind of building and you're waving them around is like totally divorced i mean it's not a bad thing i totally get yeah. that this the heart sentiment of that expression but in some ways it's also kind of funny just because it's it's very different from the actual experience and we i don't know so like if we were going to take that that kind of experience and transmute it into something that's modern what would it be you mean the the original Palm Sunday thing? Right. Um, I don't know. Maybe like uh, maybe like when the president gets inaugurated, he goes on that like parade where he walks down the street, and then he goes to all the different like balls, the different galas. So what would we like? What would we do though to kind of express our patronage of that inauguration? Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know. This year people did riots, so. <laughs> but I, I guess maybe like I don't know. Maybe like. <laughs> blogs i don't know be like writing blog i have i really have no idea there's really no like modern equivalent that i can think yeah of. i can't think of i mean i either. guess like the the classic like tinker tape parade might be the closest thing that we would have in our culture it's just so much like more difficult for us to be able to participate in something like that in the same way where we have like the palms and the laying down cloaks and trying to respect the royal authority of the person who's yeah. involved and we're honoring just doesn't kind of i mean in our culture specifically but the best thing i can think of is like rolling out some red carpet but that is yeah. the same as like me taking off my shirt and laying it down. Yeah, I mean, this is I mean, this is going to transition hopefully not uh, ontologically, but this will transition into some of what we might be talking about later, but I think like the closest thing we might think of is like the celebrations that happened when World War II ended because like the triumphal entry and the palm branches and riding in on a donkey, all of that is um supposed to be representative of like um, it's not just like, welcome to Jerusalem. Hey, we're glad you're here. It's it's like a victory <laughs> celebration. It's like the conquering king returns and part of him, part of him demonstrating that he's not no longer at war is he doesn't come back into town on a war horse. He right. comes in on a beast of burden. So there's all this, this symbolism wrapped up into it. But we, I mean, even like the presidential celebrations, we're not celebrating like a victory over our enemies at that point. Um, you know, we're celebrating that we have a new leader. I don't know why we have to celebrate that way. We spend a bunch of money to do that. But, um, but yeah, like the celebration parades and victories that happened when um, the people came home from World War II or things like that, I guess would probably be the closest thing we have. Sorry, that just made me laugh because I was thinking like they did that for everybody. Like all these Galilean pilgrims, like here comes the next guy. Let's welcome him. Yep, here comes the next guy. Welcome to Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah, probably not. We'll leave the palms up for you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and that and that's like that's a crazy account. There's all sorts of crazy stuff going on there. My favorite uh, higher criticism objection to the Bible is when Bart Ehrman has like this major objection because it says that Jesus sat across them, and he's talking about the colt and the the mother. The one account I think it's Matthew, but I I might be wrong. One account they bring both the um, the donkey and her colt. Mm-hmm. And it says that they laid jackets across them and he sat on them. And any honest read recognizes that them is referring to the jackets. jackets. So they sat jackets and he sat on the jackets. But Bart Ehrman makes a big deal about how, well, like, was he like straddling across the do- the two donkeys? Was he sitting on, he's sitting on them. It's like, come on, dude. Like, yeah. y- like, you know, Greek, that's not like, this isn't even a difficult question. He just wants to pick at the Bible. That's my favorite ridiculous objection from the higher Mm. criticism. That's pretty funny. I love that. Welcome to Jerusalem. Welcome to Jerusalem, pilgrims. So Here's your donkey. Everybody, you get a donkey and you get a donkey. Yeah, Yeah, fantastic. So speaking of the beginning of Holy Week with Palm Sunday and kind of moving through what we traditionally use as kind of either signposts for reflecting on the last days of Christ or celebration culminating in Easter – Something that I wanted to talk to you about was a question that had come up to me through somebody else. And that was in regards specifically to Good Friday and how we honor Good Friday with a service and kind of this sense of obligation to be a part of a service at your church through Good Friday. Or how does the Bible help us to kind of inform how we participate in that kind of stuff, especially this time of year? So I wanted to kind of throw it out there and talk to you a little bit about Good Friday services. Should we go? Should we not go? Should we feel guilty if we have other obligations or serving some other capacity? What do you think? Sure. So a lot of this goes back to discussions that we had. Um, We talked about the regulative principle of worship, which basically says um, that we must we must worship only in ways that God has commanded. 
uh, and it's contrasted to the normative normative principle. Normative. I added yeah, I was going to say where did the extra m come from? The uh, normative principle, which which more or less says we may worship any way that is not forbidden. So um, the regulative principle would say that we're not allowed to create holy days. We're not allowed to um, make new obligatory festivals or feasts. Um, and, and so you can kind of go back to that episode or you can go back to when we talked about Advent because a lot of this is the same kind of stuff. Um, but one thing that's really important for us to remember, especially coming out of the, the Reformation, I got into it with a guy on the internet a little while back because um, he had he had said some things about the regulative principle that I, I didn't think were terribly accurate. Um, and he kind of just disregarded it. And one of the things that I think is important for us um, historically to think about why the regulative principle came sort of came to be and it didn't come to be, but why it became such a focus Um, particularly among the Reformed in the uh, Reformation. And the reason is because they were coming out of the Middle Ages where basically every day on the Roman Catholic calendar was an obligatory feast day. So practically every day had a feast dedicated to a given saint. And there were certain things you had to do in order to earn merit or to avoid certain kinds of sins on given days. And especially there were these high holy days of obligation, which the Roman Catholic Church still has. So if you uh, fail to go to church on a high holy day of obligation and you don't have a legitimate uh, excuse, it's actually a mortal sin and it will cost you your salvation. Right. So that that's like the extreme that we're talking about. But that's why it was so important coming out of the Reformation, specifically when it comes to things like holy days. Um, there's also the, the veneration of saints and icons and all of the other stuff going on that plays into it. But for what we're talking about tonight... The, oblig- or the obligatory holy days is really what they were going after. And so it's really important for us to remember that the church does not have the authority to institute new holy days. So whether that's Christmas, right, Christ's Mass, which was one of those high holy days of obligation on the Roman Catholic calendar, or whether it's Ash Wednesday, we kind of joked about that a little bit earlier, but there are certain days that are obligatory um, in the Roman Catholic system. And then when you move into like Lutheranism or Anglicanism, they're not going to come at it in the same sort of strict way. They're not going to say that these are like obligatory days that you lose your salvation or anything like that if you don't do it. But they do treat the liturgical calendar um, in such a way that these days have a special defined meaning. And even though they're not obligatory, they serve a specific function in the church and they are instituted as official, uh, official days of recognition by the church. So when you come to the Reformed tradition, and I'm talking kind of broadly confessional Reformed tradition, not necessarily like the Calvinistic um, non-confessional Reformed tradition, um, that the, the um, instinct is to push all of those away. So Good Friday, you won't see most most um, confessionally Reformed churches doing Good Friday services. Um, you won't see them typically doing Ash Wednesday services. You won't see a lot of discussion of Lent. You probably won't even see a lot of discussion about Holy Week as a thing, right? Monday, Tuesday, all those different days. Right. Um, most of the time, they still make use of the season since there's sort of a highlighted emphasis on um, Christ and the resurrection in the wider world than there is normally. But they're not going to make use of these days in a way that institutes new obligations for the church. So the, the question, as you posed it to me earlier, was should I feel guilty if my church is holding a uh, Good Friday service and I can't make it? And the answer is absolutely not. Right. You shouldn't feel obligated to go. Now, um, I want to say loud and clear that in general, if your church is doing something and you have the ability to attend and participate, you should do that. You should be an active member of your church. You should participate in what your church is doing. Yep. So um, just saying like, well, you know, my favorite TV show's on on Fridays, and so I'm not going to go to Good Friday service. You have the freedom to make that decision, but you have to ask yourself, you know, is participating in fellowship with my fellow Christians more important than this? Is this a special opportunity that I'm passing up to watch whatever TV show that I could catch on Hulu the next night with zero consequences? Um So there's a, there's a balance I think that we have to draw that when the church is gathered and active and doing something, it's not obligatory, right? The only obligatory thing that a Christian has on the Christian calendar, if you want to call it that is the Lord's day. Um, a Christian who refuses to attend faithfully, uh, Sunday morning Lord's day worship is living in perpetual and ongoing disobedience. And that's a really big deal. 
But um, even something like Sunday evening service, which most Reformed churches do, um, they're not necessarily going to consider that um, obligatory in the same way that a Sunday morning service would. Um, but lots of Reformed churches, um, we're talking like Orthodox Presbyterian Church, Presbyterian Church of America, confessionally Reformed churches will have gatherings on other parts of the week, right? If if they want to call a prayer vigil because somebody is sick in the church, the elders may send out a message saying, hey, we're going to gather on Wednesday night. We're going to pray. We're going to have some worship. Um, we are going to do A, B, or C. We're going to do these things. But it's not obligatory. It's no longer mandatory for Christians to attend. Right. Does that does that make sense? Do you think that that kind of gets at the concern that that whoever spoke to you had? Yeah, I think so. And that was basically kind of the discussion we had. And it was a good foil for that deeper discussion of talking about this in kind of a paradoxical sense. So God has made us to be sensible people, but we need to understand the scriptures in terms of what he has explicitly commanded us to participate in his worship and have freedom to understand the things that are not. And at the same time, the reason why I think it's paradoxical is because those often who are asking the question sometimes have the best intention. And that is they understand that they need to be part of the family of God. They're very committed to the family of God and they want to be part of the family of God. So they're likely to go to that anyway for those good reasons. Right. But nobody, I agree, should ever feel guilty as if there's certain days, even in kind of the quote unquote general evangelical calendar that are more high and holy than others. So like my right. gut would be people would rank for instance, Good Friday service in terms of its priority over Christmas Eve service. If you had to miss one, you'd be like, well, it's Christmas Eve and there's stuff going on. But like, you know, Good Friday, you got to get to a Good Friday service. And there is a little bit of Catholicism in that for me because I have a good friend who was traveling and this person was going to be away on Ash Wednesday and was was kind of freaking out, honestly, because their their mother had called them and said, well, you got to get to a service. Like you got to get ashes on Ash Wednesday. Right. And we kind of had a conversation about, well, why? Why is that so important? What, what is it about that day that's of this paramount significance? And in point of fact, they would be attending a service at, or at a congregation that they weren't even essentially connected with anyway. So right. there was this major divorce. So I think it's helpful to understand and go back to the regular principle. And this is where, for me, it gets flushed out is in questions like this. And right. we're certainly not saying you need to tell your church, I'm not going because I don't have to. That's entirely the wrong attitude, like you said. But it still is helpful and it changes, I think, our attitude and the the content of the service that we participate in when the intent of our heart says, I don't do this because I'm afraid I will feel guilty or it is obligatory even in my own mind, but I do right. it because I'm communing with the body of Christ. And that is important to me, even if I need to take a Friday night to go ahead and sacrifice that time. Even if we're saying perhaps whenever that occurs on the calendar is like purely incidental, like, like we're not necessarily saying this is the exact day on which Jesus died. Right. What we are saying is this is the day in which we're going to commemorate it with some type of special gathering. And so to set that time aside, I think volitionally, say I want to be part of the family of God, that that's an honorable thing, but something that we shouldn't feel compelled to do in a strict sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, and that kind of gets to something else that I, re- I remember doing when I was, um, before I was reformed is I would go to like Good Friday service because Easter was uh, like crazy on Easter Sunday at my church. So the church that I was at in kind of high school and early college, we had this huge like 450 uh, person passion play that we did. And so on Palm Sunday, we would do the triumphal entry scene. And then on Easter Sunday, they would do a scene from the resurrection. And so all the people who couldn't get tickets to the show because it was always sold out would come on those days to sort of like get part of the show and like the best part of the show. So I would very frequently skip church on Easter Sunday because it, it was like it would take you two or three hours to um, to even be able to find a parking spot and then get out of there and you couldn't get seating and all of these reasons. And, and you know, in the grand scheme of things, the church was doing something on a Sunday morning they shouldn't have been doing anyways, according to the regulative principle. Right. Now, this was a Lutheran church who doesn't care about the regulative principle. But um, the fact is that like they – the service was a problem and getting to the service was a problem because they were already violating the regulative principle. But the fact that I went to church on good Friday, I justified in my mind, well, I don't need to go to church on Sunday because I went on Friday. You know, and that's like a major issue. Yeah, but I that, feel like that's that really common for people. Yes, that is. I, I think that, yes, I totally agree with you on that. I think that this, for some reason, 
totally can cause Christian, good Christian perspective, like to fall out of whack this season for logistical reasons like you just talked about. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit when we talked about preparing for worship too, is that um, the fact that God set aside Sunday morning as holy and dedicated to him, that's why it's obligatory because he's he's dedicated it for a specific use. And that's where it comes into the regular principle. God has said on Sunday morning, this is how this day is to be used. You are to do these things on Sunday morning. You're to worship in this way. You're not to add or invent things that I have not commanded you. And when we we add things like Friday night, that's totally fine. It's totally fine to have a Friday night, good Friday service, or even an every Friday worship service. But those other extra worship services that you might do cannot and must not replace Sunday morning. So if you're in a giant church and they say, well, we're going to do a Saturday night, Saturday night option because we can't accommodate Sunday morning. That's a problem. That's a really big issue. And most people don't, I don't think most people look at it and say, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. I agree with you on that. And that's one of those strange things because I think they get to a point where they say, well, the Lord is blessing our ministry and what's happening here. And we need to make changes to accommodate logistical hurdles Right. And it's way deeper than that. We're not just saying, well, this is, you need to manage this better and manage, use your space. But that, that's why I think we have not mixed words with emphasizing how important the Lord's Day is in gathering for corporate worship, that right. it's non-negotiable and that God has made it very clear that that's a specific means of grace. I suppose the other days of the week can be used in various ways for means of grace, but it's clear that God has said, if you want to step into the stream, it, it's flowing on Sunday mornings. Right. Yeah. And even, I mean, even I think a lot of churches instinctively do this when they have extra services. So I know at our church, when we have like a good Friday service or a, um, like a Christmas Eve service, it's not a full service. We, we do some special music that we wouldn't normally do on a Sunday morning. Sometimes we have like a performance, like more of a, um, an actual performance kind of thing. But then we also, um, we don't typically have a full sermon. And I don't, I don't think I remember ever having communion at one of those services, unless we happen to have Christmas Eve falling on a Sunday. Um, obviously, Good Friday never falls on a Sunday, but I don't remember True doing that. communion um, at any of those kind of extra services. And so churches instinctively recognize that that those other services are not the same thing as Sunday. Yeah, morning. that's a good point. Even when you know, I'm the church that I was at that had like eleven different services. Even on the weeks that we would do communion, they wouldn't do communion on the Saturday night service. So even though they were sort of blurring that line between what's the Lord's day and what's not, there still was this instinctive thing to not do something that's set apart for the Lord's day on a different day. There's like, it's as if we know there is a line and instinctively we're, we're willing to say, well, we'll do these things outside the right. Lord's day. But, th- but this stuff we recognize to be supremely important and part of the identity of that day. That brings up a really good point because I've often thought the extra kind of services, the extra gatherings, those are wonderful places to have expressions that are outside of the Sunday morning, like right. drama, for instance, or concerts, or hearing from other speakers or missionaries, something like that. Because again, the God has set aside the Lord's Day for specific with specific components. And I think rather than worrying about, well, can we fit everything into a Sunday? That's where it's appropriate to say, we are going to gather at different times in the week or different times during the year on a day that's not the Lord's Day. And we're going to have something special. And that, I think, is right. is a great place and space to do it in. Yeah, and that's, of course, not to say that the regulative principle doesn't apply to other nights. Right. But um, we're not adding, you know, we're not adding drama to the Lord's Day worship if we're gathering on Wednesday night and we have some prayer and some worship and then a drama. Um, and I mean, I remember going to churches in seminary that did like these Christmas cantatas, which I don't know what the difference between a cantata and a musical is, but they would do these Christmas productions on Sunday morning and just replace the Lord's Day worship instead on, you know, once a year with these things. And um, it never, it just never really made a lot of sense to me why we would do that. You know, one of the things I was thinking about as you were giving all that wonderful information that people should take notes on is that um, I've been thinking a lot this season about legalism, especially as it applies to people that are outside the family of faith and that have a certain compulsion, for whatever reason, some of which I don't understand, to attend church on what they consider to be major holidays. And I was wondering, you know, I I was thinking, maybe I think about this all wrong, and I love your perspective on this, because especially with Easter, just like you said that the church you're going to before being completely packed out, that's also going to be, I think, the experience of so many people this coming Sunday, including my own. Right. And I've been thinking a lot recently about 
how God perhaps is able to use legalism to break people's hearts by getting them merely in the pews. And so some of my prayer this week has been, God, if you want to use legalism to get people to come here, to hear the gospel message, who would otherwise never sit down on any other given Sunday, then then go ahead and use it. I mean, have you ever thought about legalism in that way as a tool God uses to kind of break sinners? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've... Um... I think on two fronts is I've never been involved in church leadership in any church that didn't have some sort of um, impulse to recognize that there are going to probably be people on Christmas and Easter that um, that aren't normally there. And I think, you know, we look at that and I think that just really reveals the way that people think about God because people who are atheists don't typically go to church on Easter and Sunday. Right, it's not like they go, I don't believe there's a God, but I should probably go check this thing out. Um, sometimes, um, sometimes they go just to see what's going on and God can use that. But the people you find in um, the pews on Easter Sunday, you know, Easter Sunday Christians, quote unquote, are the people who think that God is going to be mad at them if they don't. Go. Right, exactly. So exactly what you're saying is that the this legalism principle that's built into, you know, we're all kind of Pelagians by birth. We haven't talked about Pelagianism yet, but Pelagianism basically says that like we're, we're relatively untouched by the fall. Adam just gave us a bad example. And if we just work hard and try really hard not to sin, um, we can, we can make it. And so that's, that's the way people naturally think about God is like, well, he's angry at us, but if I work really hard, I can kind of win my way back into his favor. And that's why they go to church or they go to church because yeah, well, if I'm not in church on a regular Sunday, then God probably doesn't like that. But what, you know, whatever, it's just a Sunday, but on Christmas, he's going to be really mad if I don't go on Christmas. Um, and so I think you're absolutely right that the church needs to capitalize on that and not in like a creepy, weird way, but they need to make use of the time and recognizing that, you know, Easter Sunday is not a day to preach a soft sermon because there's going to be people there that are not there. Easter Sunday is a day to hit them with everything you've got in terms of preaching the gospel and the resurrection. Yeah, amen. Um, and, and the law. That's, yeah. I mean, that's something that really ends up missing a lot of times in those because a lot of churches think like, well, there's going to be people here that, that aren't used to this. And so I have to, you know, I have to make sure that I don't offend them. And it's like, no, offend them. Like that's offend them with the law. That's what the law is for right. when it comes to non-Christians um, is you preach the law. And if they're chosen by God, it will break their heart and you'll soften them for the gospel. And then you give them the gospel. Um, but if you don't give them the law, you can't give them the gospel. Um, you can't you can't just circumvent the first part of what God is doing in the world um, in convicting sinners and hope that these non-convicted sinners come to faith and repentance anyways. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. I love that. Get that soft stuff out of here. There, there's something to be exactly. said, I think, for understanding that God can use legalism that way. And to your point, if somebody is coming to church because they do feel this moral responsibility, or maybe it's just long suffering. Like, well, I go to the Easter service because I should, because there seems like there's right. a religious component to this holiday. And after I leave the service, having put in my time, I just feel better about myself. Right. But the bottom line is people need to know that when Christian, especially non people that are outside of, of the Christian faith, when they hear about like the unconditionality of God's love, there is in a sense, of course, that is absolutely true. But there's also another sense in which people need to hear that it was came at a great cost. Right. And that, that it's not it's not free to God to extend it. And that comes into the law. So I think that's a perfect pairing. If somebody is coming saying, I'm here because I sense the obligation of some moral responsibility or law, they need to know that living in that way, sitting in the pew right now, you are just all you're doing is actually condemning yourself more. But again, exactly. I was just kind of blown away that God can use that as a tool because in our own circles, we tend to speak of, you know, legality as something that is only in the negative, only in relief. Uh, but here it's possible, I think, that, that God uses that as a tool, especially in our culture for whatever reason, to get people to come in the doors. And I just want people to be able to, in some ways, for Christians to embrace that and say, this is going to happen. And we're comfortable with that to an extent, because this might be the mighty working of God for people to be broken as we are, are were. like you said, we're legalists by birth. And so our natural proclivity is going to be to behave in such a way, you know, to even think, well, you know, I did my devotions today or I had a really good time of prayer. And so I feel my relationship with God is closer. He's closer to me. And yeah. there's so much falsity in that kind of language that we kind of smuggle in where we think in some ways I'm being rewarded for good behavior. Things will go good. This will be a great day because it started off 
in a way that's more religious or more spiritual than other times. So I don't know. I'm wrestling through that. I want to embrace that. But I, I like what you said about just get that weak stuff out of there. Just preach with fire. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I read that book um, called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson, which was just I can't recommend it enough. Man, you love Sinclair um, Ferguson. I do, man. And Devoted to God is really good. I, I haven't been making that as up. much progress as I want. But um, he makes the point in that book that um, we tend to think of antinomianism and legalism as though they're like opposite ends of the spectrum. That's true. And he actually he actually points out that in reality, they're, they're much closer to each other and they share a lot of overlap. So you can be a legalist um, by – one way you can be a legalist is by thinking that the law is uh, something you can fulfill. So you're a legalist because you think the law is so weak that you are able to, to fulfill it. But at the same time, that also is kind of an antinomian position because you are against what the law is. And so antinomianism and legalism paradoxically kind of live in the same, uh, they live in the same world. And so that's why the, the answer to an antinomian is not to preach more law. And the answer to a legalist is not to preach more antinomianism. The answer is to preach the gospel to each. And, um, Martin Lloyd Jones, and it gets quoted by a lot of people. He's he's quoted as saying, um, "If you are not accused of being an antinomian, in, an antinomian, you haven't preached the gospel rightly." And I think there's an element of truth to that. I think that a lot of people, um, you know, I'm thinking Tulian Chavillian and people who kind of run in those circles of sort of the hyper grace movement, um, they use that to say, oh, look, I got accused of being an antinomian, must have preached the gospel right. right. And that's not actually what Dr. Uh, what, what MLJ is saying. But I also like to say that at the same time, if you haven't been accused of being a legalist, you're not preaching the law correctly. Yeah, true. You haven't preached the law correctly. And um, you can't do one without the other. So to someone who is a Christian, when you're preaching the law and you're telling them, look, you are saved by grace, but if you do not obey the law that Christ has instituted in the Ten Commandments, then you will have no part in his kingdom. That sounds like legalism at first, right. but that's exactly what Paul tells us, right? That's exactly what Paul says yeah, in Galatians. Right on. The letter that is supposed to be the most anti-law letter of all, that's exactly what he says. If you do these things, you have no part in King, in Christ's kingdom. And he says in Corinthians, they're all over the place. Um, but at the same time, if you go into a room and you preach to Christians and you preach the absolutely free grace of Christ, uh, a lot of them are going to look at you and go, what, what do you mean free grace of Christ? I've got to do all these things after, even though I'm doing them as a result. And it's not as though there's a sweet spot in the middle, but both of our natural instincts to submit to the law as our Lord and to also buck the law because it is an authority over us. Both of those instincts are pricked by the gospel. Yeah. Well said. And so we should have that reaction when we hear the gospel. If the gospel is preached rightly, we should both feel a little bit like, wait a second, I don't have to earn this, but then also we should feel the just unbearable weight that we cannot earn it. Right. We should feel both of those things paradoxically. So I think that Easter is a really good time um, to be able to do. I mean, every Sunday is a good time to do that. You should be preaching the law and the gospel every time that you, uh, as a pastor, that you preach. And I'm not a pastor, but um, you know, every time that that the scripture is open, you should be preaching law and gospel. You can't preach one without the other. Um, but I think Easter is a really good time partly because there's more likely to be non-Christians in your midst, but also because Christians come with their guard down a little bit on Easter. Right. They kind of come and they think they know that they're going, oh, I'm going to get a nice sermon on the resurrection. Um, we're going to talk about the, you know, the apostles on the road to Emmaus and how the old Testament is about Jesus. Like those are all great things to preach about. But if we leave our sermon there, then it's kind of a stillborn sermon. You're not actually getting anywhere with it. Yeah. It can come across this as quaint because we've heard it so many times that we think right. we understand it. One of the things that you said that reminded me of a practical example in my own life is I love this idea that we're kind of swinging back and forth in a pendulum and we're needing both to understand grace and we're needing to both understand the law. And sometimes at different times, like you said, I don't know that we can ever balance it out. So that somebody, you can say, this person just completely balanced it out so that in this moment, I felt like I was dead center. But depending on your circumstance and what the Lord is doing in your life through sanctification, you're going to need one and sometimes you're going to need the other. And the example that always comes to my own mind, which helps me to, to comprehend this, is when I was uh, toward the end of high school, of course, going through the process of looking for colleges, I wanted to go to a particular Christian college. And the, the bottom line was, 
my parents just could not afford it. There was no way to do that. And that was, this is not a statement of, well, we, if we just rearrange things, if they worked harder, if they sacrificed more, they were already doing more than I could ask any, anybody to do for me. And what ended up happening is one of my teachers from high school, uh, who was also kind of a mentor of mine, he on his own stepped forward, knowing that I wanted to go to a particular school. He spoke with my mother in particular and said, I want to make up the difference. I want to pay for Jesse to go to this particular college. And I know that that cost is probably going to go up every year. And so also is what I want to give. Now, that arrangement uh, that we made, he did that on his own. And to this day, I, you know, I'm 36 now. I think of him often. I correspond with him regularly. And there's no way, he gave so much money toward that end. There's no way I could pay him back. But even if I could, he wouldn't accept it because that, that yeah. wasn't the point of it. So all that to say, I always feel this key responsibility, even on like a day when I'm not having a great day at work, I think about that gift and I think about how that changes my attitude toward what I'm doing. And so there is this idea that in one sense, somebody has given me this fantastic gift, but I do not feel this kind of moral compulsion to be a better person, but merely to respond in loving kindness because that gift was so great and something that I cannot repay. So for me, that's been really, I guess, impactful. I kind of hate using that word because it's a horrible word, but um, foundational, helping me understand this, this difference between feeling like I need to obey the law out of earning some kind of just rewards. Like I can elevate myself from this place to the deserving poor. And that's just not the gospel at all. To this idea of understanding that my obedience comes not because I want something done for me, but because something great has already been done. And I want to respond yeah. in loving kindness. Um, one of the things I know we're kind of like anticipating a bit, but just in case somebody doesn't know, because I think you laid it out really well. Hit me though with like your definition real quick of like antinomianism. So we can kind of pair those up between legalism, antinomianism. So sure. go. So antinomianism, um, nomos is the Greek word for law. So antinomianism is simply a position that is opposed to the law. So this takes a variety of forms. Um, you very rarely find someone who is like a full-blown antinomian, but there are people who will say um, that there are no obligations for a Christian whatsoever, that a Christian can do whatever they want, including sin, and they're, that's totally fine because there's no law for Christians. Those are pretty extreme. Um, there's also a, a more um, sort of a... You would also probably call someone an antinomian who wants to say that the entire Old Testament law has been abrogated yeah, for sure. and that it's been an entirely replaced by Christ. So um, some people will say that like there, there's no obligation for Christians to follow the Ten Commandments, but Christ institutes very similar laws in the New Testament. And actually, the only one that he doesn't institute a uh, basically identical law is the Sabbath. Um, so there's a, there's a stream of thought called New Covenant Theology that is not technically an antinomian position, but it, it sort of tends towards that direction. And practically it, it ends up with, um, in some cases I've seen, seen sort of an excuse for licentiousness. Uh, so that's antinomianism would be any position that wants to say that God's law is not valid because we're Christians. That's real. Um, that's real good. That's a real good definition. Cause I think sometimes the outworking of that, that you see either in public figureheads who kind of subscribe to that view or others is this sense of just kind of go and do your thing, love God and make mistakes because it's okay because Christ right. covers all these things. And though there might be consequences, really there's no moral or biblical imperative because in Christ there is only grace. Right. Yeah. And so um, the, the, the flip side of the antinomian equation would also be people who would sort of degrade the law. Um, who would would minimize it such that it's still there, but maybe it's not a big deal. So that's that's where you get people like Tulian Chavidian who um, were accused of antinomianism. I think some of his critics were probably a little bit um, more aggressive than than was merited. Um, I think I think Tulian um, I think that he had the right the right mindset and saying this is even hard for me to explain. Theologically, I think what he was trying to say is not super far off. Uh, I don't think he actually believed a word of what he was saying, you know, when all of the other stuff comes out and, and all of the other personal sin issues. I think that probably he was writing things that he thought was going to sell. But what I think he was trying to say is that we are justified in Christ and nothing can uh, nothing can change that. And so we don't have to worry that if we sin, that we're going to be removed from the book of life. I think that's what he was trying to articulate. Uh, what he ended up saying was that we're free to sin. 
um, he had this phrase he kept on using saying free to fail. And, yes. you know, he would say, well, you're free to try to be the best husband you can. And if you fail, that's okay. Cause you're not going to lose your status in Christ. Um, but frankly, it's not okay for me not to be the best husband that I can be. Right. Um, so it, we're not free to fail. And for, for his books and his theological works, free to fail very much became free to sin. So there's those kind of flip sides. There's people who disregard the law entirely. And then there's people who have a place for the law, but they sort of downgrade it to such a minimalistic thing that practically it doesn't matter. So the law no longer has any force or any ability. It doesn't do anything. It's just sort of there. That's also, I would say that's also an antinomian position. This is where I think there is this wonderful coalescence in Easter, because as you've kind of said before, the softness of God's grace has to be juxtaposed to the hard edge of the law. That is the way. And in Easter, really, you see those two converging. And it's a wonderful opportunity for churches to express that very clearly and very cogently from Scripture. And, you know, sometimes, as I've kind of been thinking about recently, when we come to Palm Sunday, we come to Easter, I think two great errors can can happen. One is that, especially seasoned, if we can call them that, like, I don't know, well-cooked Christians, they'll they'll come with just a lack of investigation to these Scriptures because I've heard them so many times that we think they're either super quaint or I've really gotten all I've, I've got out of them or right. I, I can only hear so many sermons about how the crowd is is fickle and we are fickle as well, all, all that kind of stuff. So the right. first great error would be a lack of investigation on our part, a, a urgency to want to be in the scriptures in a deep way, or to come with the expectation that that's going to be happening from the pulpit and through the worship time through music. And the second error, which I think leads from that, would be particularly relevant to those who are teaching or are leading. And that is this error of creativity, that because there's lack of investigation, I've got to be particularly creative now in my approach to kind of spin the story, turn it in my hand in such a way to look at it from a different angle. And this is how, at least in my opinion, we get weird sermons like, what was Palm Sunday like from the donkey's perspective? Like, who cares? There's so much other great stuff that God has given us in there uh, to really meditate on deeply that we just don't need to go there. We just need to preach the gospel in all of its glory and trust and trust that God is going to use that to to fall fresh on people, that he's going to throw his weight around when you tell his good story and that you don't need to dress it up in the other way. I suppose that's like both touching on the regular principle and, at least in my perspective, just avoiding those two errors. I don't know. Is that a fair criticism or am I just totally just going off? No, I, th- I think it's really good. And I think, um, you know, thinking about Easter as a microcosm of, of how this all works is – you know, we talk about preaching the law and the gospel. And in a lot of ways, it would be like trying to preach on the resurrection without acknowledging that God, that Christ had been crucified. And that's because in the in the crucifixion, the full weight of the law is pushed down on Christ. And since he is bearing our sins, it crushes him. Where normally he would be able to stand up upright because the law bears no strength in, on him because he's upheld the law. But because he's taken on our sin, the law crushes him as it should have crushed us. But then in the resurrection, what we see is that God has accepted his sacrifice on our behalf and he's been just, he has been justified and it's in his justification that we are justified. And so he stands up out of the grave and that's the gospel that, you know, we're baptized into his death. And if we have a death like his, we will also be raised into a life like his. So, you know, Good Friday, and if you want to look at it this way, Good Friday is the law and Easter is the gospel. And you can't have one with the other. Right. You can't have the resurrection without the crucifixion. I suppose you could have the crucifixion without the resurrection, but that's not the gospel. It's not good news. Um, so I just, I just think that makes a really helpful illustration to think about that, is that we have to recognize that our, our death is completed on Calvary, that, that the good news is not that we've escaped death, because we only escaped death because someone else didn't. Right. And so to say that, like, well, there's no law for us. No, there's a law for us. And it crushed Christ on the cross. That's a lot of, <laughs> but it, it, it crushed Christ on the cross, right? He bore our iniquities. And, um, to, to say there's no law is basically to spit on that. Yes. You know, R.C. Sproul, um, it's, it's funny because R.C. Sproul, uh, if you've listened to him long enough, you start to cycle through, not just cycle through the actual recordings, which happens if you listen to Renewing Your Mind, but you start to cycle through kind of like his punchlines. 
And I'll never forget the first time I heard him say it because I knew where he was going. And he said something about like, well, it's true that you were saved by works. And then he kind of paused and let the crowd kind of settle down. And he's like, it just wasn't your works. And it was like, boom, like punchline. Um, But, you know, I'll never forget the absolute best. And this this all I think all ties this up nicely. The absolute best Easter sermon that I've made to go back to your point about not getting overly creative um, to not do silly things with the the Easter Palm Sunday narratives, but the best Easter sermon that I ever had was a simple exegetical sermon on the fact that the phrase is Christ has been risen, and that the the phrase has been risen is in um, is in the passive voice, which means it was not Christ who raised Himself. Now theologically, right you know, we've talked about the inseparable operation, so it's not as though the Son was not a part of the activity which raised um, Christ from the dead. He raised Himself, and He says that I I lay my life down, and I have the power to take it back up. But the point that the pastor was making is that just as God poured out his wrath on Christ on Good Friday, he also raised him from the dead because he bore that sin and he was justified. And that was the abs. I mean, I still remember to this day and I didn't know Greek. I didn't know any of that yet, but I remember hearing that and it clicked all of a sudden. I realized it's not just that, well, yeah, Christ died, but he, you know, he didn't stay dead because you can't keep Christ dead. You can't keep God dead. Um, it wasn't that, I mean, that's true. Christ overcame death because he's God. But more than that, he overcame death because he lived a sinless life and death had no claim on him. Right. And that was really powerful for me. Mm, that, see, that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of sermons that I love to be, to hear that are being preached as opposed to, again, like you said, just getting kind of funky and fun with the narrative. Right. As opposed to just doing the hard work of digging into what's there, really meditating on the depth of the details that don't need any kind of wild hyperbole or like just crazy conjecture, which is not helpful. That's why I feel like there's so much latent potential built up in these passages that we often just don't explore because again, part of this is the fault of Christians who come thinking there's nothing in it for me. Like this is for the people that that don't normally come to church. They need to hear the gospel message. I've graduated at least in a sense. If you you don't admit that, at least in your mind somewhere, that's what you're thinking. So I, I love the idea of, of participating in a Good Friday service this year where you're thinking, this is about the law and grace is coming for me on Sunday. Yeah, And, and you do need both. There's absolutely no doubt about it. So I think that is a wonderful way to think about Easter. That is some good yeah. stuff right there. Yeah. Well, I think um, we should probably move towards wrapping it up. Um, we were going to have another subject, but I guess we just went and went, and I guess sometimes the gospel does that to you. So I do want to say um, we were going to spend some time and talk about what's going on in Syria, and, and there was a bombing um, of some Coptic Christians in uh, Egypt today. And, um, you know, it's a terrible, terrible thing, and we For live sure. in a dark world. So um, if you're listening to this and you haven't uh, said a prayer for what's going on in Egypt and in Syria, um, all theological questions aside, you know, Coptic Christians, there's some theological questions that uh, I think are reasonable to ask, but ask those after you spent some time praying for the people who are suffering over there. Um, so Jesse, do you have any uh, closing thoughts or recommendations this week? No, other than I liked where our conversation went, I feel like a renewed vigor for the this quote unquote, Holy Week. And I'm just going to kind of echo what you said. If you have no good reason to not be participating, and I think your conscience uh, can convict you on this. If you have no good reason to not be participating on Good Friday, then go be with the people of God and really, really let yourself, I think this Easter, if at all, spend some time looking through the final days of Christ, insert yourself as best as possible into the drama of Jesus Christ and what he's done so that we can come to that place where we say, I, I think often we're people of really strong words, but weak action and conviction. And I'm trying to increasingly grow in this place where if I'm going to say, Jesus is my Lord, then I'm going to let him be king. And he's going to make the call. He's going to call the shots for me. And I think we can start doing that uh, this week in particular by really meditating on the scripture in a deliberate way, since our culture and our calendars are kind of allowing us to point our minds in that direction anyway. So I do want to go after really making Jesus the king that at least I claim that he is. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a good word. So um, as we close out, we just want to remind you, uh, we'd love it if you'd go hit up iTunes and uh, give us a five-star rating and leave us some feedback. And also we have our new voicemail line open. Uh, phone number is 607-444-BROS, which I think is 2767. It is. Um, 2767. So 607-444-2767. And uh, we would appreciate that. We'd love to do some questions and answers, uh, maybe do a whole question and answer session, but uh, we don't have enough feedback for that yet. So we'd love if you'd leave us a voice. Or if you got like a really great palm story, that is something other than people getting their faces burned because they didn't, <laughs> yeah. the church didn't properly care for the palms before they made ashes yes. out of them. Yeah, that just that is just like a real world living example for why you follow the regulative. <laughs> I'm just saying, I mean, that's that's like some strange fire right there. I felt the strange fire right on my forehead. That year. Uh, can you imagine? Oh, my gosh, that is so good. How have you not written an article yet about this is what happens when you don't follow the regular principle? People's faces burn off. Yeah, seriously. Like in real life, that happened once, but also in uh, Palm Sunday. <laughs> Ash Wednesday, people's faces got second degree burns. Okay, so quick question. Burning, regular principle. Now I'm just mashing these all up. Where does Indiana Jones and um, what's the one with? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Where where does this fall into place with the burning and the regular principle? I don't know. I do feel like maybe um, Nadab and Abihu, that the strange fire they were offering, they were getting ready for Palm Sunday or for Ash Wednesday. Oh, man, it was palms. That palms. might be it. The, the strange fire was because they were burning palms. Palms will get you every time. Here's here's where it all comes back. The uh, palms, Palm Sunday celebration is significant. Maybe not Palm Sunday celebration, but the, the palms in the original Palm Sunday were significant partly because that is also what was used to make the booths during the Feast of Booths. Yes, which exactly. Which is to celebrate the Israelites in the desert when they still had the ark, it's like six degrees yes. of heaven bacon here. We went from Nadab and Abihu to Ash Wednesday to Palm Sunday, from Palm Sunday to Feast of Booths to Tabernacle to Ark of the Covenant to Indiana Jones. Boom. Listen, Boom. You, will, you will not get that in other Reformed podcasts. So do us a favor and just go right now to iTunes and drop five palms on us because of how excellent that connection was. Yes, and this is my official uh, trademarking, copywriting, whatever it is. The date is 4 or 9. It is 8 or 9 p.m., and I am officially claiming whatever we're going to call this game where we do six degrees of separation between something in the Bible and a popular movie. Oh, I love this. We've totally got we to do to this think more of a often. Name. Yes, this will be our own little game that we play. So if you have some topics, uh, maybe like a Bible thing or a movie you want us to try to connect in such a way, then you should leave us a voicemail at that number. Do it. All right. Well, I think that probably just about does it. Um, I hope that everybody has an excellent uh, celebration of the resurrection this year. We obviously should be celebrating the resurrection every Sunday, but especially this time of year, um, birds are singing. It's going to be 75 degrees tomorrow. Uh, I can't help but think about new life. So I think that's a great thing to do. I think so. Hey, Tony, one more thing before we end. Yes. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen, brother. See you next week. What if I'm far from home? Oh, brother, I will hear you call. What if I lose it all? Oh, sister, I will help you out. Hey, brothers, this is your mother. Because you are, as Jesse said, hopeful and desperate for people to call, here I am. So here's that word of encouragement that you're asking for. Great job on the podcast. Love listening to you guys. Makes me so happy. Love the podcast. Love you both. Here's the word of exhortation. You need to visit your mother more often. Love you.